name is Amanda Newland Davis, and I run Oklahoma Cold Cases along with my partner Jen. At Oklahoma Cold Cases, we try to shine light on the cases of the missing, murdered, and unidentified that otherwise don't get much media attention. For the last four years, we've existed solely on Facebook, sharing the posts of the missing, murdered, and unidentified of Oklahoma. But this past year, we've branched out and started a database in which we list all of the names of every cold case that is in Oklahoma that we are currently aware of. You can find us at oklahomacoldcases.org. You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. This is Sirens, a true crime podcast. I'm Raven Rollins. And I am here today again with my regular co-host, Mandy McNeely. I want to make a shout out to our patrons real quick. Our new patrons, which of course, one's Miracle. So hi, Miracle. Hi, Miracle. And then we also have LaDonna, of course. Hi, LaDonna. LaDonna. She's awesome. I know. They're both awesome. Like both of them. I was like, you guys do not need Incredible to. Incredible ladies. <laughs> you, you do not need to subscribe to this. I would have just sent it to you for free because, you know, they've been on the show. Yes. So. Our two biggest supporters right now are Susan Stone and Brandy Doyebi. I hope I'm saying oh, her name right. That's awesome. They are, well, we have a true crime expert here and a true crime master tier that's cool So that's our top tier and uh, i think that's pretty cool thank you guys so, very much yes thank you guys for uh supporting us and if you guys out there would like you know ad free episodes you want to hear some extras and such you can go to patreon and i don't I actually because i just want to lay this out there because we do have explicit content now, we, we might not say the F word every two seconds, but no. because of our subject matter, yeah. we had to mark the podcast as explicit content. And so you cannot find us by searching in the Patreon search engine. And I have tried and it yeah. does not work. You have to literally put in www.patreon.com slash the sirens podcast. That's the only way you'll be able to find us. So if you want to become a patron, we would very much appreciate it. Yes, thank you guys so much. Okay, so this week we are bringing you the case of Sheila Devinney. We've been looking into this for, well, since September. We actually went and spoke to Susan and David Devinney. Yes. Whom are Sheila's parents? And they handed us 1,500, it was over 1,500 documents including the crime scene photos they kept everything so yeah we have we have over 1500 and that wasn't even all of it no like she still had this big tub that we didn't even get to go through and there's no telling what was in that i actually think that those were some transcripts and stuff in there that we didn't get to go through but but yeah they were very open with us 
just about everything. And so during this podcast, we are going to allow them to speak about their daughter as much as possible. So you will be hearing from them. So I do also want to make note here. We didn't have the foresight to let you guys know on the podcast episode with Shauna that you know, we were going to be on the news. Um, but we do have the foresight now to let you know that I'm not exactly sure what day it's going to drop, but I do know that I was interviewed with the Paul's Valley Democrat. Oh yes. And it's a weekly newspaper and they are actually, you know, they heard that we were dropping this episode and wanted to speak with us about it. And they're going to feature Sheila's case and kind of our coverage in the paper. So you can look for that as well. As soon as that comes out, I will link that on our website. David and Susan Devinney. Uh, I'm her father. Susie's her mother. Sheila's mother. And uh... this is our story. She was born in Belleville, Kansas on November 3rd during a cold snowstorm. And I had had trouble with her older brother when I gave birth. And I didn't have as much trouble with her, so we just barely made it to the hospital and she was born. No anesthetics, just the tilt of the table. And uh, it was cold. We stayed there for a few days and then he came back to get me in an old Buick <laughs> and we had to put a cardboard box in front of the, heat, the radiator. radiator to keep us warm driving home. <laughs> and we lived at Aurora, which was east of Concordia, Kansas. And that's basically where we started. We stayed there for part of the winter and then we moved down around Nickerson and Hutch, Kansas, and we lived there. Then we moved to Cheney, then we moved to Purcell, Oklahoma, and we lived at Purcell, Oklahoma. From there, we went back to Cherokee, Oklahoma, and from Cherokee, we went to Medill, Oklahoma, where our third child was born at Tishomingo. Then we moved up to May, Oklahoma, and from, from there, we moved down to Clarksville, Texas, and. I don't know if you've lived in Texas, but it's poor. And we got $125 and we loaded our car up and the kids and moved up here to Maisel. And it's kind of like the song, that's where the car broke down, so we stayed here. <laughs> that was in 1977. Wow. And so this is, this is where Sheila grew up. Exactly. Yeah. Right here, just home. right here within this home. area. When she was four, we moved right here. Oh, yeah, she was a free spirit. She had spirit. no problem having friends. She had all the friends in the world. Everybody loved her. <laughs> she liked to have fun. Yeah, but she come by natural. She was real popular in school. She played the flute. She was cheerleader from, no, fourth grade up every year. Her cheer sponsor, her senior year, had to figure out how many years and hours she had put in on it. Uh, she was football queen candidate her sophomore year, seventh grade attendant, and sixth grade band queen, and then she was a senior attendant her senior year. She played the flute, and she was a great basketball player and softball player. That's a lot. But if she ever had problems with any of them, she would she would give it up. Wow. You know, she just. In fact, she was probably better friends with our son's buddies that he ran with, that graduated two years older than what he was. Mm. <laughs> so she was, she was in the top ten of her class, but. She liked to party with her friends, too. Mm -hmm. So she wasn't afraid. And I always told them as a teacher that everybody thinks teacher's kids and preacher's kids are supposed to be perfect, but you're my child, and 
no matter what you do, I'll love you and you do what all the other kids would do. And she took us at her word. But there was nothing she could get by with because she was a school teacher and it all got back oh. to her. She, <laughs> she knew before she got home. <laughs> she, made, she made good grades in school. She was a popular girl in her Maysville, Oklahoma high school. She had basically every, every girl's dream because she was the cheerleader who caught the eye of the, you know, hero football star. And they started dating. And she always was a little inferior. And I think when she started, Tyson started paying attention to her, she felt like he would be a big protector. Let alone did she know after she got married that he would be the abuser. Well, he dated her one time because we had a limit where the kids could only date someone two years older or two years younger. Mm -hmm. And his birthday was late in September. So his senior year, he did take her on one date because he hadn't turned Mm. 18 yet and she was still 15. And he could, or she might have been 16. Anyway, it fell within that limit. Mm -hmm. And then after that, he dated her best friend through high school. What? And yes. How did she feel about that? They were best friends. And then uh, when Tyson came back from college in 91, uh, he he started seeing Sheila because Sheila was already dating a bunch of boys and had a young man from Kansas that always told her he was going to come down and marry her. Mm -hmm. And his family showed up going on vacation. And right after that, then she came home wearing Tyson's ring because he didn't want to go with anybody. Well, it upset her best friend. And so her best friend started dating a young man that was pursuing Sheila to get back at them. And uh, they ended up in a relationship and they're happily married today with two children. Wow. That's basically how it started and then... They actually got married in 1993 and she was all set for her idyllic life. Yeah. And his family convinced her eventually after they got married that, that we were bad. She needed to stay away from us. And so he But there tried. were never any issues before. Mm-mm. Well, it started when they were dating in high school. I've got letters that he had written to her and telling her how terrible her mother was. And Soon, Sheila's life would deteriorate into a nightmare of brutality and drug abuse and cruelty. And then he moved her off to Buffalo way far away, and it's up in the panhandle. He was oh. a football coach up there, and uh, she worked in in the pit, the salt mines while she was really? there. Yeah, she really? always had to work, yeah. She always had to work. What did she do for the salt mines? At night, she, they would harvest the salt. They'd go oh, down really? in that. Yes. Wow, yes. that's she, interesting. She wasn't ever afraid to work. In fact, really? she, when he, when he had his knee operated on, she worked the whole time she was pregnant. And really? when they lived at Lawton, they lived in a little alley house way, way back, one, one bedroom, and she washed her clothes in the bathtub and everything while he finished school and everything. So what was he going to school for, business? I guess teaching and coaching, and especially after their son was born. They took her down and tried to tell her, which, you know, you get, go through postpartum mm-hmm. and got her on Prozac and really she gained a lot of weight and felt bad about herself. And We do see some of the things that were described as being your typical domestic violence situation and things like alienating, controlling who they speak to and who they don't speak to. We also saw classic signs of 
physical. We did see, you know, hear about some physical abuse that supposedly took place. Emotional. Emotional, yeah, abuse. And I think that's the thing, too, is that a lot of people think that domestic violence is just physical abuse, and that's not the case. Yes, it's it's it can be emotional, physical, it can be, um, you know, we just talked about alienation, it can be love bombing, it can be, there's so many things that encompass domestic violence. If he would have done that to someone else, or there would have been something going mm-hmm. that that would. But we don't know out. anything about his yes. other relationships. Mm-mm. No, so you know it's really all speculation. Yeah, so it's hard to say on this one. Honestly, I want to say one thing that you don't have to go through these stages. These stages can be different. You don't have to go through the love bombing stage and then the alienation stage. Um, They don't have to happen that way. You can go through where you think you know someone, you know, because you might have known them when they were younger or you might have been, you know, you might be friends with somebody that's really close to them or something, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's how they feel on the inside or that's how they're going to be in a relationship. A lot of times, you know, they could not do the love bombing stage because you might know them and go straight to the alienation stage. Okay. So it does not have to be in any sort of order. No. It just, it's really about um, control and really about if they feel like they need to do that to control you or if they don't. And if you know someone, maybe you don't. Right. And I think the first step of that was getting her away from her family. Yes. Yeah. And that that is kind of where it all started to go downhill from what we understand is that from 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 there, it started with alienation and then it turned into it was emotional abuse, Mm -hmm. you know, gaslighting and stuff like that. And then kind of turned physical. And they had a party on New Year's Eve. And Sheila did not look happy. You could just see it was wearing on her. And that was after they got married in July. And they had a big New Year's Eve party. And I guess he got upset and started throwing her around and broke the bathroom door. And I got a call from one of the mothers of the daughter that was there. And then right after that, she found out she was pregnant with Morgan. Of course, he just knew he was going to have a boy. And... He had one of his little rages when he found out Morgan was a girl. But then Morgan turned out to be more like him. She was more athletic and and did the things that he liked to do where uh, Ty, Ty Boy didn't. That's what they called him was Ty Boy. So he, Ty Boy didn't like it. He played football, I think, up to sixth grade. And then he, he went into the band direction. He liked band and art. And Tyson always said, well, he's real smart, just like uh, your mom's uncle's. Which Sheila was, all three of our children didn't have any problem in school. We're always on the honor roll. And they, I'm not They're bragging on my kids, yeah. but, but yeah, they, 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 were, they, were, they were fine academically in school. Was there ever any um, evidence of him like, hitting her? Yes. Yes. She, uh, but he always would do it where it was concealed, um, like her wrists. Yeah. And her joints, her ankles, different places that it wasn't detectable. Like your back? Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, if they wear a turtleneck in the middle of summer, something's wrong. Yeah. It got worse and worse, and our grandson was so afraid to talk when she came back, from moved back here from the divorce. And he just secluded himself. He would How take, old was he 
too. And he would crawl under the table with his toys and stay under there and never come out and never talk. Morgan told us that when Sheila, when her mom and dad got into a fight one night that her dad knocked the TV off of the stand and nearly hit him and then knocked the dresser over on him and that's, her mom got real upset about it because that was her baby. And it took what, how long for you to get Ty to oh, talk? Took a long time. I worked with him a long time. They said that he would, uh, Tyson would come in and if Ty was in the floor in his way, he'd just walk by and just take his foot and just boot him out of the way, you know. And uh, Ty just stayed under the table and he'd play with his cars and I'd just crawl under the table with him and we'd cars and truck <laughs> going, you know, and finally got him out. And I remember we bought a trampoline. And he loved that, and he got he got where he'd get out, and and then he he finally started talking. There were implications that he got into drugs, and that he was going out doing drugs, doing drugs around her. Anytime that she would say like I don't I don't want this life, this kind of life, they would get into an argument about it. We have no proof of that. That is no, yeah. We we don't have any proof of that. Um, obviously, like he he never went to jail for for drugs or anything like that. So, I do want to make sure that we say that during this time, it's my understanding that she did not have just a whole lot of contact with her family because of that alienation. Mm-hmm. You know, once the alienation starts, a lot of times. They'll leave, they'll leave one person that they can talk to, a friend, someone else that they can kind of confide in. But usually outside of that, they kind of alienate you um, from the family, from any part of the relationship because they don't want to lose that control. And so they don't want their spouse, their person to be, their partner to be, um, they don't want anyone else to influence them and, and change their thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he liked to drink a lot. And there was always a story that when he was in college that he had gotten into a fight and punched another individual and the individual died and nobody ever did anything about it. He went to Cameron University on a football scholarship. And I just found out that this past week just talking to someone that that knew them when they were growing up. Uh, He started in 89 and he went until... Well, he transferred in 93 to East Central. Oh, okay. Or 90, yeah, it was 93 because it was when they got married. The coach was from Maysville, and some of the kids that played on the football team were, and he got cut from the team. He won't admit that, but he got cut from the team, and so they ended up moving back here to Maysville. Sheila tried to do the best that she could. She wanted absolutely nothing more than to like change that path for her kids. And so on November 18th, 1997, she ended up filing for divorce. She had been married to Tyson for five years. And of course it ended in a very bitter, long child custody. Yeah. yeah, Child custody battle. She came home three different times and told us she wanted out. And I made her go back and after she finally was through with him and divorced him, and we had our little heart-to-heart, she said, Mom, why did you keep sending me back? And I said, because if your dad and I would have helped you the first time, 
we would have spent all that money and you would have done it anyway. Yeah. And I said, I wanted to be sure that this was what you wanted. Yeah. And there was never a chance of a reconcile, ever. And then he forced himself in her apartment and forced himself on her. And during this time before they were totally divorced and she tried to report it, which didn't go anywhere. And then when she got in with the crowd up there, there was problems and she admitted herself into rehab and that he held that against her. And that's how he got the kids back, but he didn't want them. Yeah. He told us he didn't want them. Said they would cramp his style. That he was going places. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and he was going places. In so the his world. mother kept him for a few months and then. He didn't even, he didn't even keep him. No, his mother did. Wow. But she couldn't handle him. And so she called Sheila and asked Sheila to come get him. She got back on her feet and went to recovery all on her own. We told her we'd help her get the kids back. And she spent countless hours and money trying to get them back. And then he finally decided he was moving back to Georgia where his current wife was from. And they agreed on a, a shared custody thing for $300 a month is what he paid. 150 per child. Yeah. We paid for her utilities basically so she could just live here. And we helped her with her gas money. And I, we're not smokers, but Cigarette money. She, <laughs> we're not die. smokers, but some of the vehicles we had had ashtrays in it, and I would always put my spare change in the ashtrays so that people wouldn't smoke in them. <laughs> and sometimes at night, her daughter would say, Mom came up, got money out of the ashtray so she could buy cigarettes. But she told me you said it was okay. <laughs> tell it on Tell it on her. Kids tell all of and you even picked the kids up from school. Oh, yeah. And from daycare. Well, I had to have a, a DHS pass. Uh, you had to have a car. Oh, yeah. You know, to get them and everything. And they come home and they'd do their homework, and then he'd take them outside to play soccer or play a game to get them outside. So he didn't really, even really come around and There was one the whole place. year he didn't come. Um, but that was after they had kept him in Georgia. He, he met her in a strip bar, and he married her in there. How long of a period of time from his divorce? When he married Amy, I wouldn't, well, I wouldn't I be able to judge. They got married in Georgia. Yeah. It was then that, you know, she and her parents thought that it was probably best for her to move back to Maysville to be closer to her family there in Maysville, Oklahoma. Oh, yeah, we worried all the time. And then she got into that apartment for single moms, mm-hmm. and that's not a good environment. Yeah. And she had some substance problems then. And my brother, who had, who also had substance abuse problems, because it does run in the family, he called us and he said, you don't understand. And I said, I don't understand what? And he said, you don't understand that addiction is an illness and it's in our bloodline. And he said, you don't have that. But he said, some of us do. And he said, if you really want to help her and it's going to be tough on you and Dave, He said, get her out of that apartment. Put her out there where you are. Take her to church. Do everything like you did when she was growing up. And he said, eventually, she'll give all that up and she'll become more like you. And so that's what we did. We financed everything we could and bought her an old trailer house, completely remodeled it, and she and the children lived just a few feet away from us. 
And they're right next to each I mean, right next to each other. I mean, right next to yeah. each other. It's not spread out across the no. land. Like, and uh, I think it was maybe 20, 25 feet away from each yeah, other. Not far. Shared the same driveway, even. Yes, they did. They were literal neighbors. They moved Sheila and the kids in into that trailer. Yes. Okay. Then on February 12th, 1998, Sheila files for a protective order against Tyson. Now, this is the first one that I could find anywhere in the records. So, I do believe that this is the first one that, you know, she actually filed. Of course, Tyson denied the allegations against him, but he also still agreed to this victim protective order. The complaint stated that Tyson was abusing her and the children. And David says that she wouldn't even exchange the children with him here. They had to meet in a public place. Uh, She was that scared of him. Her mom says, we were having our heart-to-heart talk, and she said, Mom, he's going to kill me. And I said, Tyson is not going to kill you. He can't. It was a permanent protective order. Which I will tell you is kind of difficult to get in Oklahoma, or permanent protective order. Man, I'm telling you, yeah, usually you see the ones where it's an emergency protective order. Mm -hmm. The plaintiff usually has to be there, like they set a date, and they're like, okay, it'll go into effect Mm -hmm. until this court date. But then you have to be there, or they usually dismiss it. Yes, the emergency one, you do not have to have the person that is you are filing it against present. Right. But to do the permanent one, you, you do have, have to show to, up. You do have to ha- let them know. I mean, well, the court lets them know. And then they have to be able to have counsel if they want. Yeah. yeah. So it's a little different. That's why it's harder. Yeah. Because then you have they, two opposing yes. cases yeah. or two opposing sides mm-hmm. that can you know, defend themselves. Yeah, and they, um, they set, like, a legitimate court date. You yes. go to court for it. And you both, you know, plead your side, and then you see if it's, you know, required for you to have a, a protective order or not. It's not easy in Oklahoma. It, it's really not, because you see a lot of these cases being dropped. Um, you have a lot of people that file for emergency protective orders, and then they're threatened or something like that. You know, a lot of things that... The biggest thing I hear out of people's mouths and and it's not a lie but the biggest thing i hear is oh it's just a piece of paper well it is but it isn't you know you're you're leaving a, a trail of of reports and things when you do file those well, things. and that's the most important thing that i think people don't think about is that it is a paper trail mm-hmm. that shows that there is the pro- there's some animosity there yes, for sure there is the propensity for, you know, for things to escalate. Yeah, the, because yeah. there's been things in the past. Exactly. So in October of 98, both Sheila and Tyson completed the required co-parenting course that's almost always set by the court now. Yes. And um, it was kind of a time of peace, you know, in Sheila's life. She finally was free. She went back to school, college. She was just trying to get her life back on track. And you know, get her kids allocated and get some stability in their life and was just trying to move forward with them. She had gotten an associate's degree in science from Murray State College in Oklahoma and was working towards a teaching degree, which is what her mother does. Yes. Yeah. 
following in the footsteps. And her two children were returned to the Catholic faith. And Sheila was really proud of that, that, you know, she was getting everything back in order again. You know, it seems like we're having downfall after downfall, but she's always picking herself up and trying to move forward. So then on August 30th of 2000, two years later, Sheila and Tyson come to a mutual agreement out of court. It was a modified joint custody plan. From that moment, even though they had this agreement out of court, no child support was made. Uh, and I say no child support. I mean, like, over over the year years that this is, you know, taking place, there's only, like, minimum, minimum payments. So, really, the overall of it is that, you know, we're not, we're not really paying child support here. There was a lot of back, back due payments. Yeah, yeah, and um, that Tyson was, in fact, held in contempt on several occasions for not paying child support. That is in court records. That's the state of Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And he also didn't show up to court on several occasions. And so they would always have to, like, put Eventually put stuff off, out. move it back. That's also in court records. And then eventually... On August 7th, 2001, he is held in contempt of court for failure to comply with his order. There wasn't any cohesion between between the two of them on the child support. Yeah. It, we can see that, you know, he's not really trying to work with her or the court system. So there was a non-jury trial for the contempt set for October 29th, 2002 at 2 p.m. And there had been a bench warrant out at that time for him that was recalled after the date was set. So during this time while everything is going on, Sheila actually got remarried. She remarried in July of 2001. She married Wayne Braxton Jr. Um, That did not last very long. I'm not sure exactly why. I don't know if they just didn't see eye to eye. Um, I didn't find anything in court records that could say that, you know, there was any hostility or anything between them. He actually is the one that filed for divorce in February of 2003. And they didn't have any children together. No, they didn't have any kids together. And then he ended up getting remarried in March of 2006. So they were only together for, what, two years, a little less than two years. So then finally, back to the custody battle. You know, continuance after continuance after continuance is filed by Tyson. They were eventually heard in court on September 22nd, 2003. Full custody of the kids was granted to Sheila. And Tyson got, you know, the standard visitation in Oklahoma, which is, I don't know what it was at the time, but it's usually every other weekend and you usually get some, uh, like a block of time in the summer, in the summer, in the holidays. holidays, Yeah. And so child support was implemented at that time. It was reinforced by the courts. But eventually everything was amended. Sheila got full custody and was supposed to get almost $900 a month child support. That was in September. And it was always continued and continued 
and continued until January 5th. And his mother was going to take the kids to Georgia. And well, the, the, the courts told Sheila she had to send them up to, because he got them through the summer. For his, yeah. For his, well, yeah. no, it was the whole summer, but he was yeah. supposed to have them back in August yeah. so they could yeah. go to school. Okay. And she had Morgan enrolled down here. And they called the school, and the school here sent them all the records illegally. And she tried to do something about that, but could never get it to go anywhere. But they didn't. They didn't have it. And they sent them anyway. Well, it, she signed a, a receipt, her and her second ex-husband signed a receipt saying that his mother had paid them what, she, what they owed her. But he paid she had paid $75, but he owed 150 or something, and he had 75 and and they signed it and said that he would pay, send the rest to her or something, I don't know. But, but they had yeah. the paper folded. Mm -hmm. So when they got down in Georgia, yeah, there was an incident in Georgia, and um, he didn't want uh, the children to come back and tell their mother what had happened. I'm going to leave it at that. So he thought by keeping them down there that he had a free card. Like, yeah. So yeah. she had to get a lawyer here, and a we got a lawyer there. This and was over the 911, the twin tires and all of that. No. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah we, it couldn't, was. we couldn't so get was, a plane. Because we couldn't we fly. We had to drive. We drove. After the 9-11. Yeah. yeah. And, and we drove all night, yeah. part of the next day, and then slept. And went, it's a long drive. It is a long drive. And it was in the rain, and then we met up with the attorney, and Georgia has great courts. His lawyer came in and said, well, she gave custody to the kids. We've got a paper right here that proves it. And wow. so I asked to see it. And it was the, the receipt that was written out to her for that child support money. But at the top, it they said, it said, I, Sheila Devinney, do give full custody to Tyson Hendricks, their father. Wow. But I looked at the attorney and I said, hmm, you'd think that somebody spells their name S-H-E-I-L-A wouldn't spell it S-H-E-L-I-A, oh, which exactly no. matched the, uh, the support check. checks that the kids got. Forged. It was forged. Wow. And we do have a copy of that. We that can prove it. And so anyway, that didn't work. And the lawyer told us when we got the kids back, because Morgan ran to me and Ty ran to his mama. And he said, get those kids in that Explorer and don't stop till you get out of Georgia. Mm -hmm. So we drove and stopped in Alabama and fed them. They went the end of May and we got them back in the middle of September. And they even put her in school down there. It was a year before their dad saw him again after that. Again, at this time, he owed a lot of money in back child support. Now, I think at one point I, I calculated it and it was somewhere between... Fifteen and twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, it was quite a bit. Yeah, it was quite a bit because we're going back this uh, several years and several children. So it it was you know a good sum that was going to start being garnished on top of that you know his regular child mm -hmm. support payment. The money was going to be due to start coming out on January fifth, two thousand four. Sheila showed up to the courthouse that day. You know, that's the day that they were going to say, this is when we're going to start 
garnishing it. This is, you know, she showed up to the courthouse that day and was informed right then that the date had been moved. So he had, he had gotten that date moved back to January 27th. She went to court. Her second ex-husband went with her. They told her it was continued till January 27th. The night before we had our office set up in there, I don't remember what we had the bedrooms back here. And, uh, we had a small business. We were doing invoicing and everything. And generally, when we do invoicing, nobody is allowed to bother us, you know. <laughs> We've got the whole evening doing that. But she come in, and I wanted to talk to her. And, and uh, she wanted to, She w- we knew she needed money, you know. And we were willing to help her with the money. She, but, but she, she wouldn't. Yeah, wow. she wouldn't take money from us. But she said, he owes me money. He needs to pay his part. Now, I agreed with her that it, that's her father. He does need to pay his part. But uh, she told me she called him. She, she said she would call him, and I know she did call him. Uh, I don't know that, but I'm sure. Well, we had phone records, I think, that showed that she had called him. And uh, she was always afraid that uh, Tyson was going to kill her. And I'm like, how can he kill you? We live this close together right here. We're, all you got to do is holler or call, and we're right here, you know. The next day is when Sheila was murdered. On January 6, 2004, one day after Tyson's original deadline. It was 8 degrees, and I had to leave for work at 7.30. And a lot of times he didn't work because the wells would freeze up, and he and our son would go to work, and he called and asked him if it was really necessary for him to go to work. And so I left for work, and he always would call me. We'd call each other and talk while I went to work. And he said, is everything okay? Are you making it okay? And I said, yeah. I said, I just worry about her and the kids because I don't think they were up when I left. I said, I worry about her and the kids. I just want to make sure they were still warm. And they had made pallets and had shut off her bedroom and their bedrooms and slept there in the living room and the kitchen because she was saving her propane because she knew how tight money was. Sheila took her children to school at Whitebead at 8 a.m. She spoke with a good friend of hers via cell phone on the way home. When she got home, she was still on the phone with her friend, and she indicated to that friend that she had a, quote, special friend who was at her home. Like, she showed up, there was someone at the house, and she referred to that person as a special friend. She then, according to the friend, nervously ended the phone call. Now, Sheila's second ex-husband, Wayne, was also in the picture at the time because they had been kind of redating each other. Talking. Talking and kind of seeing if there was still a connection at the time. And he had been staying at her home. Um, from what I understand, he had been staying there one to three nights a week at the time and would just kind of come and go and it wasn't super serious but you know they were just trying to see if they could reconnect or anything however according to him they had argued about something the night before and he decided to leave and actually went out of town alan green a neighbor drives by the home at around 9 30 a.m and notices nothing suspicious He states he did not see any vehicles or any smoke or any fire at that time. He also states he didn't see any cars drive past his home at the time while he was outside working. 
Another neighbor, Lisa Coslett, saw the home smoldering around 10.08 a.m. This would have been just 30 minutes later. She stated she was driving by when she saw the smoke and stopped at the home. She went to open the front door, and the front wood door was already open. She did not see any flames inside, but saw greenish, gray, and red-colored smoke. That's when she called Alan Green. Other neighbors, Brandy Green and Rita Green, called 911 at 10.20 a.m. And so I went to school, and I taught between the elementary, which was pre-K through sixth grade, and then I taught seventh and eighth grade science at the high school building. So I was between two buildings, and it was a first year I'd started because I resigned here from Maysville. But the secretary down here at the high school knew everything about us, and Sheila was like her number one sub when she couldn't find anybody to take the class, and Sheila needed the money, so she would sub if she wasn't in college. And um, Sally called, and Nobody knew how to get a hold of me, but I'm not a teacher that carries my phone around. My phone was in the elementary in my desk down there. I was at the junior high, and it was it was probably third hour, second hour, third hour, and the secretary came in and knocked on the door, and she said, your daughter's house is on fire, and they can't find her. And so I left, and, and when I got to the four-way stop at Stratford, I called the school to see if the children were okay and told them that, their house was on fire, so they immediately took the children to the office and kept them there till we got back a hold of them. After I made sure the children were safe, I tried to call her, both her phones, and neither one picked up. And so I called him. He, he and our son sound a lot alike. And I just blurted out, Sheila's house is on fire, nobody can find her. And our son said, oh, blank, and I knew his dad didn't use that language. So I knew I had just done the wrong thing. And I said, I need to talk to your dad right now. And so I called him and told him, and I didn't think I was gonna make it. When we got to the curb on Highway 19 North of Paul's Valley, I, I thought I'm gonna have to have somebody drive me. I can't, I can't go any farther, but I just kept praying. And I made it and turned down our road, which was pretty well blocked off. Uh, down at the bottom of the hill there. And I asked the police officer, I said, have they found Sheila? And he looked at me and he had tears in his eyes and he said, I don't have that information yet. And so I came on and when I came on, they cleared the driveway so I could get in because there was cars probably a half mile south of us, a half mile east of us and all the way down to the brick house on the north. They took my keys from me. Somebody jerked the keys out from me and my two, his sisters and my neighbor held me by each arm in the neck because I was trying to get in the house. People were putting sock hats on me and everything, and I, it was just like nothing. I was, I was east of Chickasha, just a couple of miles. I got the call and made a U-turn and headed back here. When the fire marshal arrived, he saw the front screen door was closed, but the wood door was open. The home was filled with smoke. He went around the back, and the back door was closed and hot to the touch. He went back around to the front and stepped inside, but the smoke was too thick, and he was forced back outside. He saw flames and smoke coming out of the south windows of the mobile home. The Maysville Fire Department arrived on scene at 1025 a.m., 
The first official fire truck arrived at 10.30 a.m. Lindsay Fire Department also responded, and by 11.30, the fire was finally extinguished. I was watching him and our son running around the house with tears in their eyes, hollering for Sheila. And the fire chief and the assistant chief, he said, I can keep one of them out, but I can't keep both of them out. Dave managed to slip by him and get in the back door. Mike got in and grabbed him by the shoulder. As he got right up to where if he'd have took one more step, he would have stepped on her. And pulled him on the shoulder and said, Dave, you need to come out of here. And so he did. It was then that Chief Southard went through the front door with his assistant chief and found a body on the kitchen floor. David's account of what happened next is truly heartbreaking. I didn't ever see her when I went in the house. I mean, when the fire was burning and I did get in, there was so much deep smoke and ashes were like that deep where the ceilings had fallen in and everything. And uh, The refrigerator was on fire, big, big flames. And, and I know uh, that uh, Freon gas would explode. And I thought, well, I, I need to get out. Mm-hmm. And about that time, the fireman grabbed me by the shoulder and said, come on, Dave. And we got, you know, we got out. And, and after the fire, they said that the firemen that were initially involved in it took some of them up to five days to be able to sleep because of what they had been through. And they knew her from when she was a child. I was on the phone trying to call family because most of my family lived in Kansas. Word travels fast here. So most of his family that, that lived here were here. We called Tyson's place of work because I didn't have any of his numbers and he'd only lived, moved back here since August. This was January. And they said he wasn't there, that he had left early that morning with, at that time they said his brother. I think it's changed now, but at that time that's what we were told. And I said, well, my my daughter-in-law said, well, if he comes in, would you ask him to call? And we had to use a corded phone because our electricity was off because of the fire. And so um, she called and he called back, screaming through the phone so loud you could hear it. And she held the phone out and was trying to tell him. And he said, I know, what do you think you're doing trying to call my place of business? You don't have any right to do that. And she looked at me startled and she said, Susie, you're gonna have to take the phone. So I did and I said, Tyson, we didn't know how to get a hold of you. This was the only way we knew how to get a hold of you. And we need to call you to tell you that Sheila's house is on fire and she didn't make it. I know. How could he have known about He that? couldn't have. Because we had they had just found her body. And we were well, told. You were right we there. were there when she was found. Mm. I always said it was my dad. My dad's strength kicked in and I just immediately started trying to take care of everything. And one of the neighbors came and got me and she said, you need to go check on your husband. And our son was still talking to the medical examiner. And I found him in the bedroom, up against the closet door that goes from the bathroom to the bedroom. And he didn't know who he was or where he was. And so I touched him on the arm and he said, I don't know how we're gonna fix this. And so I grabbed him and I said, I don't know, but I said, you know how we are. I said, for some reason, I'm okay right now. But I said, you know me, and you know there's gonna come a time when I'm gonna go. 
you're going to have to help me through it. And I said, I'll get us through this. As hard as it is, I'll get us through this. But you're going to have to help me when it finally kicks in on me. And he looked at me and he held his hand out. And we shook on it and gave each other a kiss. And we've kept that promise for 19 years almost. And that's, that's how we do it. We never, ever blamed each other because we thought we were doing what was best for her and for the children. The state fire marshal's office deduced that a metal pan was the main source of the blaze that had been left on the stove. And so she must have been cooking and got flashed, you know, or something, and it incapacitated her. And, you know, this maybe she died from smoke inhalation. It, it was thought to be an accident up to this point. So it was not investigated as a homicide. After they did find her body, I came back to the house so that I could start calling. I called the funeral home so they could come and get her because I knew she didn't make it. And then the, the fire investigator, the he, what a medical examiner came and he took our son back in there in the bedroom and asked him if there was anybody that was mad at her. After that, then he came, he came and her second ex-husband came and they had some kind of a confrontation out here in the front yard. We never did know what that was about, but there was... The second ex-husband? Uh-huh, and the first. And the first, okay. But we never did know. But I wanted them in on it, because I did... You always blame somebody when somebody dies. It's always somebody's fault, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I didn't want to be like that, because we'd been through it. He'd lost his dad, I'd lost my mom and my dad. I just didn't want to... I didn't want to blame anybody. I, I guess I, in my heart, I wanted to believe it was an accident. But then we, we couldn't, we just couldn't let it go. And it just kept eating at us. And so we pushed it. As hard as it was, we pushed it. They, they only let me go in the house one time, he, him and the boys. The next day they went and the fire reignited. It was just a little under the cabinet uh, in the kitchen where the pans were. It, 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 there was a small fire burning in that. And I had a water can on my truck, and we went out there and cut the water can and Because it everything was froze up. Yeah. At yeah. that time. Yeah, and they shut all the water off, everything froze. It was, yeah. See, she put the tape around it that day, and she went through everything, and once they removed Sheila's body and everybody was getting ready to leave, she told me, she said, I want to walk you through everything and show you how I think it happened. And of course, she said the fire started at the north and blew through the south, and a far flashback. I know it couldn't have done it that way. The but, wind uh, wasn't even blowing that day. And I was walking through the house there, looking at everything, and the stove still had a pan melted on the on the uh, the oven. There had a, a pan melted on it, and I I took it off the burner, and I'm I said, man, you know, uh, y'all might want that for evidence. I said I better set it back, and and she said, uh, now there's. Once we tear the tape down, there isn't anything here that'd be admissible in court. She said it will all be considered tampered evidence. And so as far as we were concerned, and we didn't know any better at the time, that it wasn't, we would might as well get rid of it because if we had people that were going to do it, and because uh, we'd never be able to use it in court as far as that was the way we understood it. And there was a fire marshal's report. The, fire, the, the initial fire marshal's report is the one that 
summed it up to an accident. It was submitted as an accident. So yes, they they did collect some things. They were able to collect what was left out of her car. They were able to collect some things that hadn't burned completely, and we, we did look through those. And it, the one picture that got me where I had to like stand up and leave the room, like I had to stand up and go outside and get some air, even though the crime scene photos are really hard to look at, the one picture that got me, she took this picture of some books that Sheila had um, been looking through and one of them was and I can't remember exactly what it was but um it was like learning the DHS system for your children and then one there was another book in the picture right next to it that was something like um how to be a better parent how, how to be a better parent like co- co-parenting for your co-parenting. kids something like that and then right next to that was um chicken food chicken soup for the women's soul and just, like, those, there was another one in there, I can't remember which one that one was, but looking at those, like, as a whole, I was just like, I can't, because all she was trying to do was, like, do better for her kids. Like, that's, you know, like, she was just a human trying to do better for them. And I literally, I had to stand up and walk outside. I was like, I need a break. <laughs> yeah, it's tough. It is tough. It's and tough. And I can't, I can't imagine what the, the family has been you know, dealing with for 19 years. The next day, the propane man was out here, and he was inspector, and he was, and we drove up as he is here. He was taking numbers off the propane tank and checking it out, and I walked over, and I visited with him, and he spoke a little bit. He wasn't real friendly, <laughs> you know, and I told him, I said, what do you think about it? Do you think this was uh, accidental house far? Do you think it was arson? And he said, uh, I'm not going to talk to you about any of this. He said, you want any information on this, write my uh, superiors a letter, and if, if they get back with you, then you'll have your information. But, and I said, well, the, the assistant fire marshal that was here on the scene said that it was an accidental house fire, and he stopped in his tracks and turned around and looked at me, and he says, an accidental house fire? He said, you come with me. I want to show you. And he walked me through the house and showed me where three different fires were set in the house. And that propane heater that we had in there, it was burn above it. He said, that will not burn that way. He said, these heaters are designed. They will not do that. Somebody doused gas on top of that is what he said. Kitchen, and he said, in that bathroom, there's not even a heat source in the bathroom. Yeah, he said. Uh, and it was gutted. Yeah. There's an ignition source in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And where was the other point in the kitchen? Yeah, in On the, the kitchen. stove. Yeah. And the, those those appliances were fairly new. Oh, the other. Because when we got the house paid for, you know, mobile homes don't have the greatest appliances. Yeah. So and those we, were nice. <laughs> we yeah, we spent good money and and put a new dishwasher, refrigerator, and and stove. We had a thirty-four hundred dollar refrigerator sitting in yeah. there. Oh, well, yeah. And yeah. and that was that would have been that the yeah. stove couldn't have been at most five years old. Because we took our old appliance and put it in her trailer that we remodeled out here. Mm-hmm. And they were still good. They were still usable. Mm-hmm. And her trailer wasn't new. And so we just, when we replaced everything in our home, we gave her the old and made it nice for her and the children. That just confirmed to us, you know, and this was just right after the fire here, a day or two after the fire. And so we definitely were suspicious of homicide, you know, beginning. What we learn is that there were actually three separate fires that were started inside the trailer. 
Now, one started on a propane heater, uh, which would later be classified as an amateur attempt to make this appear like it was a location, like a, a source of the fire. And it, it, when we looked in the pictures, it was literally the only thing remaining in the home. It was. It was like basically untouched. It was. And then you have a second fire that was started in a bathroom of the home. And then you have a third fire that was started on Sheila herself in the kitchen. Not the pan on the stove, but Sheila herself. So what was determined was that there were flammable fluids splashed around her. There were flammable fluids actually put on clothing and packed around her body and set on fire. But yeah, with it having been cleaned, this person would have to have known where to go to collect clothing to pack around her body. It, it is determined that she was alive, may, maybe not awake, but definitely alive at the time that she was set on fire. I called our medical examiner and talked to him about it, and uh, he kind of gave me some leads on it because when the day of the fire, the medical examiner told me, he said, this is a very suspicious death. He said, I don't have, I, he said, the fire marshal has already told me that she's going to write it up as an accidental house fire. He said, I hope she doesn't. He said, you guys need to pursue it. Or the ME. Yeah. He asked us why she would have a bunch of clothes stacked around her. Want to know if she was messy? Did she, did she was live Was her house just dirty? Or, yeah. And we had just, we had just cleaned that house from yeah. top to bottom. Because the kids had came home with head lice and she had cleaned house that day, the weekend before, because Tyson had the kids. And even their stuffed animals, they were in bags yeah. that we sprayed. After we sprayed them, we put them in the bag because and closed the, them up. The yeah, to get the heat away from them, you know, so okay. they wouldn't live. Yeah. And, I, I mean, her house was immaculate that weekend. Yeah. I promise you. Because to get rid of head lice, you have to really, yeah. really clean. Yeah. They and said then, that she, she had dirty clothes all over the house in there. Not dirty clothes, but clothes. Clothes all around. All around loose like that and they were packed around her and everything and Tyson was nice to her when he picked the children up when she got the children on Sunday and she came home and she goes that was really weird mom he was actually civil to me this time did they have anything left of those clothes to be able to test them the fire marshal got rid of all of it said all she had was just a little bit in the can and uh-huh. she said it was from the hair on the back of her head and that little strip, a little strip of, off of her flannel pajamas she yeah. wore pajama bottoms. A little strip right here at the back for on the elastic part. And that's where the accelerants carpet underneath it, I think, also had some on it because we had some what, kitchen carpet. It, I called it indoor-outdoor carpet. I don't know, you know. So the Oklahoma Office of the Chief Medical Examiner did perform an autopsy, but actually had refused to reveal the results of the autopsy for over nine months. Uh, I also want to add that there was a little spot of carpet that was found underneath Sheila's body because she was laying on the ground that was untouched by the fire because she was laying on it. 
that carpet was sent off and it was tested and there was a presence of accelerants found on that carpet. Accelerants found in her lungs. This is only going to happen if you're breathing in those accelerants. Now, toluene was one of the biggest ones that was found, but also benzene was one that was found. Now, both of these things are highly flammable. They are both clear. They're both colorless. These things go into something like, and what we think was used, something like paint paint thinner. That was found in her lungs and on her body. Now, her body was burned so badly that... I'm not going to go too in detail, but I will say that there were some places on her body where there was thermal amputation. And and usually that only happens when accelerants is present. It has to be very high heat. It has to be very high heat and very concentrated. We know that she was severely doused with accelerant. We know that she was alive when she was set on fire. I spoke with Rick course he works very closely with the fire department and they have these like meters carboxyhemoglobin wow now that's a thing that fire departments use a lot to see what those levels are in you smoke inhalation is kind of what this measures See how much is in your lungs. And when someone dies from smoke inhalation they'll have about 80 percent of that level their levels will be about 80 percent um sheila's levels were 18 percent which tells me that she did not inhale a lot of smoke so for the amount of toluene in her lungs her carboxyhemoglobin was 18 percent which should have been closer to around 80 percent or more to have actually died from the fire and when we found out what maybe two weeks later that uh no smoke in her lungs, just a very little. We knew that uh, it had to be a homicide, or she, if if she died in a house fire, her lungs would have been full of smoke. You know. All right. So the morning of the fire, Susan Devinney had called Tyson Hendricks at his place of employment at the time, which was Bruce Jones Construction in Lindsay, and Bruce Jones's sister Lori Hunter answered the call and told Susan that. Tyson and his brother Donald had left together early that morning for the day. So Tyson and Donnie had actually been at the scene of the fire that morning. This was reported by witnesses. And the shop manager said he wasn't there. We've got that recorded where he said Tyson wasn't there. Later that afternoon, Joanne Sellers, who was a detective from the Oklahoma Fire Marshal's office, came to investigate, and she spoke very little to people at the scene other than Tyson and Donnie. Uh, According to witnesses, she casually visited with them as she sat on the tailgate of a pickup and smoked cigarettes. That morning, Tyson was reported to have been seen by two separate individuals in Maysville, Oklahoma which was about 12 miles east of Lindsay, Oklahoma at the time. And Sheila's home is about two miles east of Maysville in a very rural location. It's not that far out of Maysville. No. But once you get out of Maysville and you turn down that 
road. It's kind of winding and up and around. And, you can't and see it from the main road. Once you're there, you can look out and see for miles and miles. You can. It is, it is it somewhat is secluded. secluded. Yeah, it is. He was seen by Johnny Tyler of Maysville and by Kim Clagg of Maysville. As of September 2004, no one had questioned those two individuals. Okay, so then according to the Divinis, Tyson Hendricks insisted on bulldozing what was left of the home just days after this fire. So about 7.30 a.m. on January 8th, 2004, and just two days after the fire, Tyson and Donnie were at the scene with a dozer from his work, which was Bruce Jones Construction, to tear down the remains of the home. Tyson says he did not want his children to see the remains. That was his excuse as to why the remains of the home needed to be demolished. Apparently, neighbors also pitched in to help remove debris and to search for anything salvageable. One neighbor said that Tyson seemed nervous while he was out there running the backhoe. He says, quote, he was running the backhoe just extremely erratically. And he looked straight at me and said, do you think I did this? And at that time, it didn't dawn on me that anyone had done it. And that was from Daniel Beck, who was a witness there. Everybody kept coming in the house telling us to get rid of it. Get rid of it. Get it out of here. Get rid of it. Our neighbors were going to do it with their tractors and stuff, you know, and scoop it. And nobody, and nobody except one neighbor that was like a grandmother to my children that kept them when I was in college that lived a half a mile from us said, you need to leave it and you need to go in there and go through it and, and help yourself grieve. It was so bad, we didn't sleep for 24 hours after it happened. Longer and then the that. phone and and the door, people just kept coming and coming and coming. It almost seems like you were bombarded we, with we, decisions. We were, and and they everybody just really wanted it gone because I guess they thought if it was gone, there wouldn't be that reminder there. Yeah. And then our son came and talked to us, and he said, Mom, there's a way they can trace the chemicals and everything on a fire. He said, don't, don't throw all her stuff away. He said, don't get rid of all of it. He said, keep what what was salvageable. That's so smart. And then our ex-husband told us that he would let us keep the kids till spring break if we would remove the remains. And his boss came and told him he could use his heavy equipment to get rid of it the next day. Well, then we had, they held her body on autopsy. That was on Tuesday. And they didn't release her body until... Thursday or Friday, because we went down the next day and immediately started planning the funeral. Well, Wayne Wayne couldn't cut him. He said he didn't want to, that, you know, that was our deal. But Tyson came to the funeral home. And when he got there, he stayed just a little bit. And he sent his wife out here to go through her things to help get rid of this stuff. Our daughter-in-law was doing it, but she broke down and started crying so bad she couldn't do it. And so we told him just to get away from it. And then the funeral director's wife handed Tyson a little pamphlet and said how to help your children grieve. And he looked around a little bit, and he looked at me and he goes, here, you deal with this. Kids are resilient, they'll get over it. And he left. 
And so we stayed there and finished all her arrangements and and did everything. And my sisters came, and they're both older. And of course, there was a lot of things they didn't like. And of course, they went in and had their two cents on the funeral director and got it all fixed the way they wanted it, which it was correct. But if you've got a big sister, you understand what I'm saying. I do. And I had two. She's five years older than me, so I totally. I had two, one four and one nine years older. So I had I had two, and we got that all done. And so we wanted the kids to come back. So that was on Saturday. Well, he, when her uh, lawyer and her counselor came to the funeral, and Tyson saw him at the dinner, he grabbed the kids and left. He would not let the kids stay with us. And that was on Saturday. And, and by, by that time, how much of the house was left? Well, we we left the house till after what it took the insurance. Yeah. Oh yeah, that. But that yeah. happened the next day. But it must have been probably then Thursday. And I think it was three days or something like that after we got the insurance come out and adjusted everything and got their appraisal on it and, and released it. He disappeared mm -hmm. to Dallas on the Friday night that we had her rosary. Didn't show up. He was supposed to take time, get his hair cut, and get him all fixed up. But he mysteriously went to supposedly to Dallas to pick up Amy's best friend. And she came to the funeral. And they actually sat with the family. And they followed the hearse, or the, it was a van, mm -hmm. to the cemetery. And uh, what I don't know. And she was the house mom at the strip club. That was her best friend. Well, supposedly she came to help get the kids all moved in. But two days after, they let them go to school Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Shoot, Amy went and checked them out and put them at Lindsay that soon. And her funeral there was standing room only. All the church Sunday school rooms were full. The auditorium was full. The church was full and they were lined up on each side. And people tried to get in. They had to park at the grocery store just to walk to find out they couldn't get in. He said, look at this. Look at all these people. Or we can't leave here. He said, they all love us. Look at all this support. After death, the fire chief got cancer and he, he didn't live very long and so they told him after they had done all the treatments and everything for him and his wife to go to the cemetery and pick out his plot and get everything all ready and he, he has tons of family all over the cemetery. His wife thought he would want to go there. When they got to the cemetery he said I want to be right here. And she said, right here, where's right here? And he says, right here by Sheila. He said, because when I get to heaven, I couldn't save her here on earth, but I will take care of her up there. And that's, that's, where, they, that's where he is. The Divinity has hired a private investigator to find some answers, starting with why their daughter's ex-husband would volunteer so quickly to obliterate a crime scene. We initially started with one investigator and he gave us a notebook full of information of what he found and he wouldn't take the case. So we kept that. He was scared. And we tried to get another attorney at, at Oklahoma City that we knew when we took our self-defense gun license carry. Mm -hmm. And we went great. to him. He wouldn't do it either. So I had a friend I called and asked her who to hire here in the county and we hired a local attorney. 
Well, we'd love to get a, a civil attorney to take the case because it, you don't have to prove it beyond a doubt. But we can't. Nobody will take it. We've already spent $150,000 and we're both retired now on a limited income. It's like he told the OSBI agent, Mr. I will never accept the fact that this is a, an accidental house fire. And he said, I'll sell everything I have and live in a tent before I let you put accident on that. Yeah. We had a wrongful death uh, suit filed, but it was dismissed and we were never notified about it. Wow, really? We went to renew it and it, it had been dismissed. And we're we had real one attorney. happy with our uh, OSBI agent right now. He's, he seems, now. yes. Well, we took it to an out-of-state attorney when we had trouble. And he told us that it was, <laughs> her death was a violation of a constitutional right, mm -hmm. life, liberty, and happiness. And he said if we could ever get that charge, then we could probably go somewhere. Well, and the fact that they still, you know, reside in... Yes, they still live in there. the area. Yes. Yeah, that that's very important to make note here because we did go when we did go out and speak with them, they still live in the same home. And that spot where the trailer was is just right outside their front door. Like it's still right there. I don't know. You have to be to me, you have to be really strong. I think it would be really hard to, to stay there. To to stay there and, and walk out your day. door every day. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that they can and I'm sure it is extremely difficult on them, mm -hmm. but the fact they can be that strong to say, Look, we're here mm -hmm. and we're gonna fight for our daughter yeah. is to me is just It's almost like they're telling somebody you're not gonna run us off, you know? No. Yeah. And Especially when it's you're when you don't know who did this to your child, right? And you you don't know if they're coming back, mm -hmm. you know, if they could be watching you or what they're doing, and then you have to after the the grieving process, which that never stops, but after the initial grieving process with the funeral and you mm -hmm. know family and all those kind of things. You have to go back to work. Yeah. And you have to go back to your daily routine because unfortunately... Life goes on. Life goes on yeah. regardless. And yeah. I hate that, but it's just yeah. the way it is. And so to think about them having to go back to their daily lives, even though they don't probably want to, mm -hmm. and to think that someone could, someone's just out there. And mm -hmm. so I think in any case that we do, that I that is a very big factor that I think a lot of us forget about mm -hmm. is that the family, the, the next door neighbor, the friends, they've still got to live with this fear. Right. They still have to live with the fact that there's someone out there mm -hmm. and that could come back, that could do anything that you just don't know. Yeah. And so it's important, I think, to remember that. Yeah, absolutely. A year, exactly a year after to the anniversary, I stayed home from work. At almost exactly the time her house was burned, his brother drove his brown truck by the house. And I was here by myself. I called my sister-in-law, and I was crying, and I said, I need, I need somebody to come stay with me. I need somebody to come with me. And I know it was just intimidation. And we have found, I went to church one day, and when I came home under the carport, there was a chicken parts everywhere and chicken blood all around where I parked my car. You guys don't even have any chickens. We didn't. This was before we knew it was a homicide. 
We have theories about how this happened, but I do want to state before we get into those that they are just that. They are theories. We do not know, and we will probably never know, you know, unless somebody decides to confess, but we will never know because there was no homicide investigation done at at the crime scene. Yes. So, my theory is that after Sheila dropped the children off at school, Mm -hmm. she came back to her house and... Someone was either waiting inside of her house mm-hmm. or right there around the back of her house. They either entered or already in there, and she went to her restroom, and a struggle ensued. I'm with you there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, think I agree. Something was probably placed over her mouth. Yep. I agree. Or her nose, mm-hmm. um, or both, with a substance that would render her unconscious yes and this is i i think we're in agreement up to this point because if if you look at the things that we've looked at in past cases like the ether man um paint thinner can absolutely be used as you know the same in the same manner that ether is used and it causes nausea it does it causes it it can actually cause death immediately yes but we know that she wasn't dead you know, at that point, because she had to inhale that, you know, somehow. So whether that inhalation took place where someone put something over her mouth and she inhaled, you know, during a struggle. Yes, it's possible that she could have died then, but it's also possible that she could have just passed out. Which I believe is more likely. Yeah. Scenario. And that somebody drug her from And somebody the drug her from into the kitchen. And I I want to say I think they actually drug her. Oh yeah. I, do I don't too. think anyone picked her up. No. I think she was actually drug across the floor. Because of the way her body was laying. Yes. Yeah. And laid out in front of the stove. Yes. And seen a lot um where some firemen have told me that you your hands will you'll They'll be in fists and your arms will draw in and you will. um, And you did not see that. No. It is obvious. Yeah. Not even just speculation on that part. Mm -hmm. It is obvious on that part that she was laying um, in an unconscious, at least unconscious unconscious. manner. So I I think that she was drugged there Mm -hmm. physically, laid out, clothes put underneath her. I think... There might have already, I think the pan was probably already on the stove. I mm-hmm. think that had already been on the stove. Yeah, I think it that was just a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that accelerants were put on her. Mm-hmm. I think accelerants were put in the bathroom mm-hmm. because that is where a confrontation took place. Mm-hmm. And I also think it was started on purpose. I mean, I think it was started on purpose in all three, but specifically on the heater mm-hmm. to look like it came from yeah and i do want to say uh speaking of the bathroom it's where they actually put the liquid onto like a rag or whatever and possibly even spilled some that may not have even been a location that they wanted to you know have accelerants on but it could have been a mistake that was made because they were kind of in a rush and maybe spilled some while they were trying to get it over her mouth. I also think that she probably knew her assailant, and I'm going to say why. Yeah. And I would think if it was an intruder, 
she would have turned around quickly and tried to get away. And it could have even been that an argument took yeah. place. Whatever happened in that home, and this is another reason why I think that you and I agree on she knew this person, because whatever happened in that home through witness statements, we see that there's only a 30-minute window. There is. Oh, that's a good that's a good point to bring up. Yeah, and so we have... So all of this has to happen in 30 minutes or less. And hit on that point a little bit more to the, you know, the, both the parents that live next door were conveniently at work. Right. And so it would have had to been someone that knew there was no one home. That's a good point. Yeah. I also think that it was planned out. I don't think that this was, I'm just going to show up and see what happens. Like, I'm going to, you know. Confront and then just see what happens. And and I do want to just say real quickly um, that, because I know you guys are thinking it. You're like, okay, but what about this boyfriend slash ex-husband? that had been staying with her off and on okay so yes we looked into that he has a pretty rock solid alibi he was in fact out of town so we well we don't know anything we don't know anything but but he was not there but we assume that he was in fact where he said he was at the time well and i because it was more than just one witness. oh yes and i think it's interesting too that he had been staying there and then the day the day after he left that also makes me think that someone was watching her for for some time maybe knew what his vehicle looked like and wanted to make sure that you know we don't know if maybe they had you know come up with a plan on okay well i'm gonna stay overnights on mondays wednesdays and fridays well and how would someone know that that. but if you watch somebody long enough You'll know their schedule. You'll absolutely be able to learn that. And he was the only factor that could have been spontaneous in this scenario. Yes. And I want to say to everyone, just a little quick blip. This right here should tell you why you need to change your routes up Mm -hmm. when you go home. Mm -hmm. Change your cars up in the driveway. If you keep one in the garage, you keep one outside. Change them up. Um you know, take a different route home, take a different route to work, take yeah. a different route every once in a while, mm-hmm. just change it up a little. So yeah. people do not, it makes them harder to watch your complete routine. Yeah. 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 And I, I definitely think that her routine was a factor yes. in this because someone had to have known that she would take her children to school every morning at the same time. They would have to have been basically sitting there waiting for her when, you know, when she returned, knowing exactly when she would return and that her parents would also be at work and know their work routines and know, you know, that they are hardworking people that don't miss a day. You know, I feel like we need to reiterate here as well that when we say someone she knew. Uh, it's not necessarily someone that she knew intimately. It's not necessarily someone that she was, you know, really close friends with. But I mean, like, possibly went to school with. Came in contact with. Possibly saw every day when she went to the grocery store. You know, something like that. Someone who legitimately took to her 
and wanted something that they could not have from her and possibly, you know, either developed a a stalking mentality with her or just wanted to eliminate her. Well, you know, and again, talking about, she said, my special friend is here. Mm Mm-hmm. That's one. That's the one part. That's such a strange reference I know. to make. And that's the one thing that, I mean, a lot of it stuck with me, of course, but that is the most, I think, the highest. It's the strangest part yeah, of that's it. that's stuck with me. Because if you, well, Mandy, if you think of the psychology of it, when would you really use a phrase like that? Never. I mean, honestly, I mean, I, I, I'm just, honestly, you would never use that phrase unless you were trying to not let someone know the name of who was there. Or you were being sarcastic. Or, yeah, you were being sarcastic, like... My special friend. I, I could see it used as, as a reference of, like, you know, somebody asked me, like, let's say I go to the same grocery store mm-hmm. every week and there's a cashier there that has asked me out 14 times and every time I tell him no and that's the only place to ever see this guy is at the grocery store okay so then in probably when I'm talking to you or talking to my friends or whatever I'd be like oh he's he's my special friend you know like yes. very sarcastic like and so that's also a possibility yes um but that is definitely one point of this that is very strange and doesn't connect it really doesn't so you're on the phone with your friend and you're driving home and you pull up and you say to your friend oh my special friend is here i'm gonna have to go that does tell me that maybe there was somebody outside that she could see before she got waiting out of the on car. her yeah if you go with my two-person theory it was somebody outside that she you know she knew and somebody else was waiting for her inside Yes. I mean, that's, you know, and if you corral someone enough, you can get them back to where you need need them to be. No one witnessed any cars outside no. of the home. So that's why I'm saying this happened really fast because if she did pull up and she did recognize a vehicle, if there was a vehicle in the driveway, anyone who drove past there did not see a vehicle. They could have taken that side road. So, that, but it was a dirt road. I Yes, I, I do want to mention... That the home sits on what could be considered a T. And so there's technically three different directions you can take to get to the home. But they're rural. I mean, they're not. Yeah. yeah. But if you know those directions. You'd have to know If you know where you're going, then it's really possible you would also know what neighbors are nosy and to avoid. Well, and that's even more reason why... This person knew her because yeah. I don't think they would have gone back down the road t- past the neighbors because then they would have seen their car. So they yeah. would have had to come in the two back ways, which are both very rural, mm-hmm. in which you wouldn't know that they did were not a dead end unless you knew that route. I want to say, too, when you're out in those little tiny towns, communities, and you're out in a rural, people pay attention to what you're doing because there's not a lot of traffic. So if some car drives by, people are going to look up to see who it is. If they oh, yeah. hear a car, yeah. and it echoes out there, yeah, they're going to look up. So if you're in the city, in the big city, and people drive by, people don't pay attention. Yeah. But if you're out somewhere like that, you want to know why someone's coming by. So it's very highly unlikely that the neighbor would not have looked up. Yeah, I think so too. 
was we came in off of 19 and went south. Mm-hmm. But the way that her home sits, almost between two main, is between 74 and 19. And it's like literally the halfway point between 74 and 19. It's like two it miles is. on either side. And so, and then if you go with the unconventional leave route, not the way that we took, the way that you would take to go into Maysville is the way that we took. But to leave Maysville, as if you're going out to the highway, you can take that and go straight to 19, a different direction. Yeah, and it would be, that road would be right next to the house. So, again, that's why we think that this was planned out, because you have a home that's, you know, a lot like the Freeman Bible case. Yes. That's in the middle of nowhere, that you really, really need to know exactly where you're going to get there. And then you have, you know, the utterance of, it's my special friend, which is just so strange to say. I mean, and, and just the arson alone, like... We know that all of this took place in less than 30 minutes. You'd have to bring that thing, those things so with you. So you would have to bring, sh- yes, this person would have have to have brought the paint thinner because from what, from what we gathered, she did not have anything like that around the home. Yeah. Um, and then you, so you have to bring that with you. And then of course you have to think about how you're going to use it once you get there, which means that you have to have known at least been in the home at least one time to know the layout of the home to go, okay, well, I know that, you know, there's a heater over here that I can act like that was the point of, you know, the source of the fire. And then I think that they didn't really think about a source being thought of with the bathroom or the body. I think they thought if we just pretend like it's the source of the fire, then, you know, the heater is, then... I'm golden. I'm good to go. But, you know, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that she knew who did this. And that they went there knowing what they were going to do. She has friends who are also convinced that she was murdered. Um, Jessica Evans is one of those who had been her friend since childhood. She bases her conclusion on conversations she had with Sheila in the days before the fire. Jessica said, quote... She told me she was being followed by a white car whenever she took the kids to school. She was scared. She never told me who she thought it was. I didn't think much about it at the time. I thought, well, maybe it's a new neighbor who drives down that same road every morning or something. Now I wish I would have taken her more seriously. Well, that's so sad. So Sheila herself thought that she was being followed. There's something there. There's some validity to it. So then after all of this information came to light with the autopsy report and the evidence and stuff like that Sheila's death was eventually amended to reflect homicide it was changed from accidental to homicide now it took almost a year for that to happen and it you know it was never really fully investigated when all the evidence could have been fresh which is why it has turned into a cold case, I think. Yes, I think so too. It's really hard to take a cold case when it has been ruled accidental in the beginning. And we've seen this with other cases because you're missing so much key evidence. We were told by the OSBI agent that if 
we had a lot of money or an important name, that this would be solved. But since we didn't have either one, nothing would ever be done. Said perhaps when I retire, and the agent who replaces me wants to look at this case, maybe you'll get something done then. Basically, that's the way it's turned out. He said even if we got a confession, I don't think that they'd prosecute him. That was that's his exact words. Thank you to Susan and Dave for being so brave and strong to sit down and talk with us and being so gracious to us. Yes. And wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, they've been very open about, you know, anything we need. Well, and it, you know, it threw a lot of surprises Mm -hmm. having, looking at all the information. There are a lot of things we found in this investigation that we cannot talk about because it is open it's an open investigation yes it's not technically closed and um i i do want to say that there was eventually a grand jury convened in this case but that was kind of tossed out they looked through and basically said we don't have enough evidence to you know bring an indictment to anybody and which i know is like it's really frustrating especially when you you know you think you have everything you need well i didn't tell you during the grand jury we were doing mediation with tyson and his attorney and his wife and so we met in the library across from the courthouse that week and um they came in and they wanted amy to come in and i said no this is not between her and us. It's between yeah. us and Tyson. I can't believe they even... And um, so the mediator came in, and I had all this paperwork of things that we had prepared for the grand jury that proved it was a homicide and everything. And I kept referring to that. And Tyson said, you better stop this crap or I'm going to sue you. I said, go ahead, Tyson. I'd love to get you in court. The mediator took me by both arms and shoved me back in a library cubicle. And he said, I couldn't do anything because if I did, they would have probably arrested me. Well, they were waiting on that. And so we watched and the librarian came and apologized to me and how sorry she was that he did treated me that way. And because I said, you don't know what it feels like. Oh, I do too. I have a sister and a niece. And I was like, no, sir, you don't have any idea if you're not married and don't have children, how I feel. And so when I finally got the best of him, then he shoved me back in there. And we looked outside, and he was out there with Tyson's attorney. Well, I'm so sorry. Just giving them all the sympathy in the world. What did they say? They offered us $3,500 and said, uh, call it done. <laughs> what? Yeah. I don't, I don't remember because I was yeah. furious. $3,500. Uh, and then when like they... if you'll just stop. Yeah. yeah. Trying to solve your daughter's homicide. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, I, that's I, I don't understand suspicious. why stuff like that can go through the courthouse over there. That that was through the courthouse. That's, wow. Yeah. This is why we're covering this case because someone you know might know something. We know that there were a lot of people in this case that were never questioned that were never, um, reports were never taken from, that 
there's a lot of people out there that still have something to say about it. And to those people, you do not have to sit around and wait for someone to come to you. You can go down to the sheriff's office. You can go down to your DA's office. You can call the OSBI cold case division. You know, you can make that happen and say, hey, I remember something, even if it is so super minuscule you think it'll never matter call them and let them know what you know you might think that it doesn't have any bearing in this case but you might actually be holding you know the missing piece to this puzzle and you know to anybody else who maybe has heard someone say something over the years or has you know said something that might be off or said something that you didn't know was about this case but you know you think it might have been about this case um literally anything if you have any information about this case we we really want you to reach out, you know, to authorities. You can always go on our website if you want to remain anonymous um, and drop a tip in our anonymous tip box, which is on the contact us page. Please remember that this is a mom with two, at the time, young children, a daughter, a cousin, a friend. This is a human being and life is just so precious and we need to, if you know something, we need to get that to the right people, to the police officers and to the right detectives so we can really try to help the family find a resolution. So 2012 was the last, really the last thing that ever came from this case. It's when the Divinis filed a civil suit to try to get that evidence released that we were talking about. Um, it was granted. They do have some evidence. They do have some evidence. Um, she told me that it was, what did she say? It was in a storage locker? I think so. Or something. Um, so, you know, there's there's still evidence we can test. Possibility that we ever need that. It's there. But other than that, you know, it hasn't really seen much limelight. So it is OSBI Special Agent David Gatlin that is handling the case now so you know if you have information track him down and let him know um you can also contact tips at osbi.ok.gov you can find us on facebook on facebook messenger you can find the justice for sheila divini facebook page and reach out to them if you have information David Devinney says, the worst thing is that whoever did this is probably someone I know. This wasn't just some random murder. This was personal. Now, whenever people come up and talk to me, I don't trust them. I know that's terrible, but it's the truth. So awful and such good people that just want some resolution for their child. It was just like, well, your dog got ran over. Just go home and get over it. That's, that's, that's what that's it felt awful. like. That, that is exactly how I felt. And, and I've had people come to me and say, you know, you got to let it go. You got to let it go. If you can tell me how to do that, then I'll listen. But if you can't, then don't tell me that. When I die and God, and God takes care of it, then I can let it go. But not until. We'll never get over Sheila's death. And There's a piece a of your heart that's just ripped out, you yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, 
because I we had a love seat in there and that window, and I just sat at that window, looking at the house. Susie and Al worked Sheila's case, and we'll hit it hard, and then we'll get away from it yeah. for two or three months or yeah, so, you know. To... So I, you know, I can be hurt, and I'll just keep it to myself, and I'll deal with it the best I can. We've lived here a long time. We put a lot of a lot of life in this community. Volunteer. A lot of volunteer work that we've did. Softball, baseball, funding. football. And uh, anything anybody can say or do that will help us on this case, we would surely appreciate it. It's Because somebody knows. Yeah, somebody knows. It's, uh, and we appreciate all the help we can get. And the prayers, especially the prayers, even from people we don't know. I'll probably say, I don't know, 12 prayers a day. It goes deep with a lot of people here. And some of my students feel like there's not going to be peace until it is finalized. People like you guys keep showing up, <laughs> you know. That's right. Just keep, just keeping it hot. <laughs> We're, we are grateful from the bottom of our heart because sometimes you feel like nobody cares, and just the fact that somebody does care, that means a lot. Keep it going till I am living in that tent or die. <laughs> I'm pushing seventy. <laughs> out, there so. the, out there in the cemetery beside her. <laughs> yeah. We're still fussing over who gets to be buried next to her. <laughs> yeah. Up to the fifty thousand dollar reward is still available. Um, it, it's attainable. Uh, we've managed to save back from about the 150 to 200,000 that we've already spent on the case that we've worked to this point. And I'm sure there's more. That's just a, an estimation of what we have spent. We don't live in a tent yet, but, but we, we still put our heart and everything that we can afford to put into it. And if anybody knows anything or if there's a, an attorney that would want to take it pro bono and do us a civil case, anything that would help, we would appreciate it. And the money won't ever bring her back. People tell me that, that we're heroes and, and oh, they, they would like to be like us, but I'm not a hero. I am Davy, Sheila, and Jack's mother. That's who I am. That's what I am. And that's why I'm still fighting. You've reached the end of our episode. All suspects are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Join Raven next time on the Sirens Podcast. Do we have an outro? That's our outro, isn't it?